Every decision they make can have an effect on our lives. Well, I'm not a crook. We had to push and shove our way through a cloud of several hundred Vietnamese trying to scale the wall. My fellow Americans, I've said on several occasions that I wouldn't comment about the recent congressional hearings on the Iran-Contra matter. The skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Immediately, there's speculation or cause for concern. This is the World Trade Center that was the center of a terrorist bombing some years ago. So the questions have to be asked, was this purely an accident or could this have been an intentional act? But either way, extensive damage. What difference at this point does it make? Millions and millions of people voted for us tonight. And uh, a very sad group of people is trying to disenfranchise that group of people, and we won't stand for it. Judy, there are protesters, protesters have now broken into the U.S. Capitol. And it will stay in recess until the call of the chair. The Senate was called into recess and evacuated. Make no mistake, President Biden's precipitous decision to withdraw from Afghanistan created that debacle. First, he passed a $750 billion so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which takes $300 billion in higher taxes out of the pockets of the American people. This is Our Lives in Politics on the America Out Loud Network with your hosts Booker Scott and Lou Basada. Election night in November 2020, most of us went to bed with President Trump leading in key states. When we woke up the next morning, everything had changed. For the first time in American history, vote counting lasted weeks. And the questions, they've lingered for years. Vice President Pence, he was to go to Congress to accept the electoral votes on January 6th, 2021 and hundreds of thousands of Americans assembled in D.C. to use their voice to protest peacefully. We mostly agree on that part of the story. And what I just said are facts. But at that very moment in history, in American history, two separate and opposite narratives emerged about what exactly happened on January 6th. Depending on where and how and who you get your news from, Those two stories couldn't be further apart. Here's what we know. About 1,000 Americans have been arrested for January 6th involvement, most for trespassing. Many have been held in D.C. prison for two years. They're in terrible conditions. They have no bond. They have no bail. And as of this week, Mayor Bowser of Washington, D.C. will no longer allow them to have visitors. It's just my opinion, but it is my opinion. There's only one American journalist that has told their story. She's followed every court case, every motion, as they wind through the D.C. federal courts. She's called out the Department of Justice and the FBI. And I'm very happy and very grateful to have Julie Kelly. She's joining us now on Our Lives and Politics. My name is Booker. You can follow me on social media at Booker Spartacus. Mainly, I live on Twitter, but at Booker Spartacus across many different social platforms. We're glad you're here today. And before we get too far into it and get to Julie, I want to introduce my co-host from a flyover state. He's also the producer of Our Lives and Politics. Here is Lou Bozada. Thank you very much, Booker. And uh, I'm very excited about our guest tonight. And uh, let's get right into it. Um, and hopefully, uh, Julie Kelly is going to be just as excited as we are to have her on our show. Yeah. And before we get too deep into it, th- the objective here of this podcast is to introduce you to personalities that you already see and you see their work, you see their passion, but we want to take it a little bit further and we want to introduce you to them in a personal way. You'll understand, hopefully when we're finished with this conversation, you'll understand what makes Julie tick, what things politically in her life made her become who she is. And we're going to find that out here in a minute. But hey, Lou, do you remember when uh, Joe Biden first came into office? Like the first week, 10 days, he signed 42 executive orders. Absolutely. (laughs) He was going nuts. 
he, he took direct aim at oil and gas. You remember he signed the, the, the one that did away with the Keystone Pipeline construction, and right away, 800 jobs left. So I want to speak to the people that are in the oil and gas industry or the people that may have family members that are in that. If you do, I want you to grab something to write something down with. Grab a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil, because I'm going to give you a website in a minute. Oil and Gas Workers Association represents workers all over America. Right now, the association has over 46,000 members. They are your voice. They are lobbying and they are endorsing politicians all around the country that stand for energy independence in America. They stand for jobs in America. Now, here's the website. I want you to write this down. It is OGWAUSA.com. Here it is again. Write it down. OGWAUSA.com. What do they do? They fight for American jobs in oil and gas. They are the Oil and Gas Workers Association. Julie Kelly is a senior contributor to American Greatness, one of the people who's followed this the most closely, whose stories have been fact-based since the very beginning in contrast to virtually everyone else. joining us now is Julie Kelly. Julie, thanks very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Joining me now is Julie Kelly, senior editor at American Greatness and author of January 6th, How Democrats Used the Capitol Protest to Launch a War of Terror Against the Police. We have all the makings of yet another hoax perpetrated by the FBI. So join us now to discuss all of this, which is outlined in her new article at American Greatness, is columnist Julie Kelly. Thanks for being here tonight, Julie. I believe you would almost have to be living under a rock for the last two years not to know who Julie Kelly is, what she looks like, what she sounds like. She's on Hannity a lot. She's on Tucker Carlson quite a bit. I even saw her on Dan Abrams on News Nation recently in an interview with that. Her work can be found at American Greatness. The website for that is amgreatness.com. She's a senior writer there. Her last book was about a year ago called Jan 6. And as I said earlier, she's really the lone voice in telling the stories of the lives and families of the J6 defendants. But what do we really know about Julie Kelly? That's what we want to get into today. I know she was a stay-at-home mom of two girls, and I've heard her talk uh, in spaces that, that I host on Twitter about her daughters and going to college. And so I know that she was a stay-at-home mom. And how does Julie Kelly end up being where she is now as that voice. And that's what we want to talk about. And Julie, I'm so grateful for you making the time to come here today. Booker, thank you so much uh, for inviting me on. Really look forward to the conversation. Well, how do, how do you get from a stay-at-home mom, we can start <laughs> there, to, to the, you know, it's not a limelight I'm sure that you want to be in, uh, but how, how does that happen to, to have your life change so much? Well, I think I do have to back up a little bit before I became a stay-at-home mom because my background actually is in politics. So when I graduated from college my and I had a degree in broadcast journalism, um, and then I went to work for local politicians outside of where I grew up and live in suburban Chicago. So I primarily worked in a communications press secretary-like capacity, so writing speeches and preparing documents and press releases, that's, you know, talking points, that sort of thing. Um, so I did that. Did you, did, you, did you work for anybody we would know at that time? Um, probably not. I mean, I, if I name names, people in, in Chicago would know, suburban Chicago. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I worked for a state senator. I worked for the chairman of DuPage County, which is the second largest county in Illinois, just west of Cook County, where I grew up in DuPage, which at the time was solidly red Republican and now last month elected their first Democrat chairman of the DuPage County Board, which is sort of mind-blowing. Um, but that's where I, I was a precinct committeeman. I was very involved in politics there. Um, and then I opened my own consulting business. So I was working for elected officials and for candidates. So that, so my background really is in politics. Um, okay. And let's, let's stay there for a minute about, you mentioned growing up in the Chicago area. 
And what what do you feel like were some things as you were growing up? Were your parents politically charged? It, 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 did you get that from either one of your parents? <laughs> My parents were extremely uh, politically opinionated. Um, <laughs> So, yes, politics, the discussion of politics was always prevalent in, in my household. Growing up, my parents were both Republicans. You know, my grandparents were. You know, you have to remember, too, Illinois used to be, like a lot of states, um, you know, Republican. When I was growing up, we had, you know, and especially when I was cutting my teeth in politics, we had Republican governors. We had Jim Thompson. We had Jim Edgar. Um, so it was not this solid, solid blue state that, that it is now. But yes, uh, we were always, um, you know, politics was always uh, discussed in, in my household. And of course, as you note at your beginning, you know, I'm just a few years younger than you were. So we were raised on Reagan. And, you know, I think that that's shaped Gen X's political views. We know that yes. it has. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really believe that Gen X, we need our opportunity. I feel like we're getting skipped over. It's gone from it's gone from this no name generation to the Z's and the millennials. And um, wait a minute, we've got something to say. So I'm glad you were saying it for the Gen Xers. Um, so your mom and dad were both political, and and you say they were very political and they were very conservative. In in history, as you you listen to our opening, was there anything in there that resonated with you that said I remember that? You know the the Bill Clinton thing, the, the, oh, the Iran Contra affair. Everything. Oh, everything. In college, I was in college during the Iran Contra affair, and I believe that I circulated a petition either to have Oliver North pardoned or something <laughs> along those lines. Like, <laughs> nice. so I've pretty much always been like this, but I remember everything except I think the evacuation, the Vietnam evacuation. I think that was just a few years before my time. But, you know, I remember sitting watching my mother crying when Richard Nixon resigned. So, you know, all of those, uh, all of those moments, you know, I'm sure just like you have, uh, you know, ingrained in our political psyche. Yeah, I don't claim to be a political junkie, but I'm pretty sure that I am. Um, I go back, you know, the Iran-Contra affair. I videotaped that on a VCR, the VHS, So because it was during the day and I was working. So when I got home, I could watch it. Right. And I think that does make me a political junkie at that point. So yeah. now you go, uh, you go, you grow up in that household, very conservative, very vocal, evidently. And you go to college and I guess political science or you said journalism was your your uh, study and and you get out and, and you work into politics. And at some point you uh, do become that stay at home mom of two daughters. Uh, so let's let's talk about that for a few minutes. Sure. So um, my first daughter was born in 2000 and um, my husband, you know, we just decided that I was going to devote full-time to being a mom. I wanted to, you know, I'd worked for 10 years and I was like, okay, I want to focus in on this. So she was born in 2000 and then we adopted our second daughter from Korea in 2005. Um, so, you know, that was a busy, uh, fulfilling, gratifying, crazy, frustrating, you know, any stay at home mom who's listening to this, you know, all of those emotions. Um, so, I did that, you know, I was full-time staying home for about 10 years. And then when uh, my little one went off to kindergarten, I was like, okay, I, I want something else to do. So I actually got back into politics and I was uh, advising uh, the DuPage County Board Chairman, a new one, a Republican for a couple of years. And um, so that was, uh, it was, not, you know, I could still be home. Um, it wasn't like, you know, I was gone full time. I did most of my work at home, you know, maybe one meeting a week with his team. Um, but it, it was great to get back into it. Um, and I think being a stay at home mom taught me so many things, you know, getting back into work after being home. The person I was after being a mom and, of course, continuing to be a mom versus who I was in my 20s. You know, you just take a totally different approach to your career. Um, and uh, I think having that time, of course, looking back, 
best decision I ever made to be home. I didn't miss anything as a mom. Um, but it also taught me skills and, and uh, things that I could apply in my career as it continued from there. And you go from being that stay-at-home mom to politics, and then you end up writing for pieces for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, of course, I mentioned American Greatness, amgreatness.com is that website. And I, I'm assuming, I haven't really looked, all of, all of your work is going to be archived there, probably, and your new stuff as well. How, how do you take the leap from politician? I mean, it, it seems somewhat natural that you would be able to write about politics, but but when did that part take place in your life? Booker, this is what I've wanted to do my entire life. I mean, right when I graduated from college, I was writing opinion pieces and, and sending them out to newspapers and mostly getting rejected, which was fine, um, which was good because I was in my 20s and I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. So, you know, I see some of these young kids, you know, who are opining about politics and the world and everything. And I think, oh, boy, you need to go get some real life experience. You know, go work on a campaign, go work for elected officials, see how government really works. Um, and so anyway, I'm very grateful that that did not materialize. But I wrote because I wrote for politicians. I wrote speeches, you know, I wrote papers, I wrote talking points, I wrote press releases, uh, campaign documents. So um, that really was my forte. So then it was sort of a natural progression to then just start writing opinion pieces. And I'll tell you, I'm just the luckiest person in the world, how this all unfolded. So when I got back into politics, my husband also is in politics too, in Illinois. Um, and so there was just sort of a uh, conflict there as the state was becoming more Democrat. And obviously, I was working for a Republican. So we had made another choice, which was that I would, you know, step away from that. And I started teaching cooking classes out of my home. And I didn't I didn't expect that. <laughs> you completely took me. I, I, the, the next sentence out of your mouth was I started cooking classes at home would have been the last thing I ever thought about. So I, I assume then we left out the part that you love to cook and you're really good at it. Well, yes. So and this is why, you know, the moms who are listening, I'm telling you, especially if you're staying home with little ones and you've given up working, first of all, you'll never regret it. Second of all, where your life goes afterwards, you just can't anticipate. Right. And this is why I'm sitting here like, oh, my God, my dream came true. How did this happen? So, yes, when I was a stay-at-home mom, because as you can imagine, I have a lot of energy and I wasn't just sitting there, you know, whatever. So I cooked a ton at home. I made all every single bite of baby food my daughters ever ate. Uh, you know, I made sure when my husband came, you know, I cooked for him. We did a ton of entertaining, too, um, because he was in politics. And so we would host dinner parties and we would host huge, big parties, 100 some odd people, and I would make everything. And I would have so many moms come to me and say, how, you know, how can I do this? You know, I'm running around with kids all day. I want to cook at least a few times a night, you know, a week. How can I do this? So um, when I stepped away from politics again, I put together this entire cooking class. I made every single recipe, every menu, and I taught it out of my home, about six women moms really per class. And uh, it was great because... I got to do something else, really put my energies in something else. I was still able to be home. You know, my daughters came home from school, et cetera, which was important to me. And, you know, help other women do what they wanted to do, which is cook good meals for, for their families. Um, how that got me back into writing is at the time, Booker, there was a lot of issues about related to food. It was the school lunch program. So this was like 2013, 2014, 2015. Michelle Obama school lunch program. Mm -hmm. There was a lot about GMOs and lab food labeling, et cetera. So I was paying attention to that, watching a lot of cooking shows. Um, and one day I saw one of my hero celebrity chefs, Tom Colicchio, um, yeah. on Top Chef. And yeah, some people say I look like him. Oh, really? I've been told that before. Yes. Years ago. I probably don't look like him anymore, but years ago people said, you look like Tom. Oh, well, again, I don't know what you look like, so... I've yeah, I never saw it. I never saw it myself, but other people <laughs> did. 
Um, well, he's a nice looking man. And I always enjoyed Tom Colicchio <laughs> until I saw him on MSNBC talking about Republicans wanting to cut off food stamps and starve children, etc. Yeah. They're telling lies. Telling lies. So I didn't realize he was a liberal. Of course, I should have. So, Booker, I sat down. I fired off an impulse, an op-ed to the Wall Street Journal about Tom Colicchio. Uh, and it was, um, I have I have it framed somewhere. So this was like October of 2014. His overcooked politics, I think it was called. So I just did it on kind of a whim. Didn't think it would go anywhere. I'm walking out of Orange Theory a couple of days later, and I get this call, and it's an editor at the Wall Street Journal, and they want to publish the op-ed. So my mm. job kind of dropped, and they published it, and you know it, and that's what got me on Twitter. So my so my brother's like, you have to get on Twitter now. This thing is you know blowing up, and Colicchio's tweeting it, and so I did. Um, what year? What year was this again? Twenty fourteen. So this is October fourteen. Fourteen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And honestly, as they say, the rest is history. I made connections with people um, who co-authored pieces with me. We got a couple more op-eds in Wall Street Journal about food policy. Um, I got connected to the Federalist. I started writing there. Uh, I got connected to the National Review. I was posting. Uh, like, you know, columns on food and on climate change. It just like kind of kept growing and growing. Um, and uh, so that's just really how it happened. And for the most part, I was focused on food issues, agricultural issues that morphed into climate change. Um, and then we got to the election of Donald Trump. And that's when the political stuff started uh, for me. The the let's let's back up to climate change a minute. What types of pieces were you writing there? Because there there are parallels I see with climate change, but really mostly everything in politics today, climate change and the way we view January 6th. You know, uh, half the country views it one way, the other half views it the other way. So when you were writing about climate change, what was your position? I was really looking at, well, obviously, I think man-made global warming is uh, a hoax. Uh, so many of the predictions and projections have never been fulfilled. I was studying the people who were peddling this, not just politicians, but the scientists behind it, say, like Dr. Michael Mann, responsible for the hockey stick graph that was exposed as a total hoax as well. So I really kind of doing what I'm doing now, which is going behind just the headlines who are the people behind it? Where's the money behind it? Where's the actual data? Where's the statistics? Um, reading, you know, all of the reports from the uh, from the IPCC, which is the main global climate change organization. Um, and so that really, uh, that was very fascinating to me. Um, and I think it did help me as background, not so much for January 6th, but definitely the COVID lockdowns, which, as you probably know, mm -hmm. I was an opponent from the very start because I saw immediately the similarities between the agenda of the lockdowns and climate. Um, so, it, it repeats itself, doesn't it? It just keeps repeating all itself. The same. And when they came yeah. out with those two phony models at the end of March 2020, um, it was the same outfits, the same people pushing it, the same inexplicable data points that they were just pushing out there. Um, and so anyway, that's how I got into writing about science, really. Um, but then after Trump was elected and there was this huge split in the scientists, not split, people like me who were writing about GMOs, and there was a little group of us who were supporting biotechnology, agricultural biotechnology. And after Trump was elected that night, um, I was like anathema to these people who we had all been allies really on some of these scientific issues. And suddenly I was a racist, I was a homophobe, I was anti-Semitic, uh, I didn't care about my daughters. Tom Colicchio actually tweeted at me the night Trump was elected how can you look at your daughters in the face and tell them that you helped elect this man? Um, mm. Yeah, so that was a big turning point. Please stay with us. We have more of Julie Kelly coming right up on America Out Loud Network.
America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20%. By using promo code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Welcome back to Our Lives in Politics. Let's get right back to more of Julie Kelly on the America Out Loud Network. It's, it, 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 sometimes when you go back to 2016, it's hard for me to remember that people were already against Trump so strongly. Oh, it, it, it seems yeah. so long ago now. It does. Well, of course, as you know, I don't have to say, it's still continuing. Um, but I think that that's when I realized how much of the scientific community was so weaponized, was so highly partisan. And that it was really a reckless time because they were blowing their credibility, in my view, um, and of course, they've really blown it with COVID. Um, but that was uh, that was a big, big turning point. And then after that, I started following the Never Trump movement, um, which was Bill Crystal and that group, mm-hmm. people who I admired. You know, being a the Lincoln Project. Well, this was sort of even before the Lincoln Project. But Bill Crystal had okay. been uh, Dan Quayle's chief of staff. Bill Crystal started the Weekly Standard. Bill Crystal was probably my biggest political hero outside of like a candidate um, because he really sort of helped relaunch the Republican Party after 1992. So he started the Weekly Standard. I was probably one of the first subscribers in 1995. Um, just really followed him and admired him. And he was really started the Never Trump movement. And I was shocked that someone I had admired who was a longtime respected conservative, neocon really, which I was too, what he was doing and saying. And so I started writing about Never Trump and just following sort of Trump's, you know, um, what was the beginning. And um, I got a call from Chris Buskirk towards the end of 2017, August of 2017. He had just really launched American Greatness. He had read some of my Never Trump columns at The Federalist, and um, he wanted to wanted me to come on board for this really new sort of publication. And so I did. And, uh, you know, that's where all my work can be found. And, you know, that's where uh, that's really where I, I guess I found a home um, to, to do what I'm doing now. Okay, and we're going to get to some January 6th stuff before we let you leave here. But let's back up to Crystal a minute. What do you think his motivation was at that time and still to this day? Why is why did he become so anti-Trump and a never-Trumper? Do you have any opinion on that? Um, well, I think it goes back to a lot of it relates to the Iraq war. So Bill Crystal and the neocons, um, and these were people at the Weekly Standard, you know, influencers anyway, uh, the uh, neocons at Weekly Standard, Nash Review, Commentary, really pushed the war and continued to push it. 
And when Donald Trump stood on the debate stage, I believe it was early 2016, and really confronted Jeb Bush and said that the Iraq war was one of the biggest mistakes in history, the American people, the world was lied to about the Bush administration, about weapons of mass destruction, um, and just how devastating that war had been. He then earned the contempt of these people like Bill Kristol and the neocons in the Republican Party who were responsible for that. Because no Republican leader had ever really said what Trump did. And of course, he was right. Um, and so I think that started it, Booker, but then it was just a, a reputational thing. It was they were against Trump from the beginning. They never thought he was going to win. He won the primary. He won the election. Then, as I, this was actually my first book called Never Trump, um, a Disloyal Opposition, How Never Trump Movement Tried and Failed to Take Out Donald Trump. So I really describe all of these people from a viewpoint of I used to respect them. I used to listen to them, but they, it just became, then it became an, a, a career for them because you had people like Pierre Omidyar, the co-founder of eBay, who started funding all of these Never Trump projects, most of them led by Bill Kristol. So uh, it became very lucrative for this group to be the, you know, alleged conservative on CNN, MSNBC, in the Washington Post, you know, Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post, Max Boot at the Washington Post, all these people, it became a career, uh, career uh, um, view for them, uh, profitable for them. So um, that's what I covered for, for a long time. And of course, they're still doing it. And actually, now they're, yes. they're targeting Ron DeSantis. You know, they figure Trump is done, but now they're, right. they're doing the same to Ron DeSantis. And you wonder, with this group of people, do they not see where this country is going, and do they not ever consider putting the country before their money and their ideas? It would be a great question that for one of them to have to answer. Like, okay, you were against Trump, that's fine, we get it, but look at what the left is doing to this country but they're full-blown democrats now booker i mean no, they absolutely. supported joe biden yeah. they wanted democrats to win in 2018 they wanted democrats to uh you know win in 2022 they they don't cheer for any republicans i mean maybe somebody like larry hogan they'll get behind you know he's a never trumper too but um yeah there there's nothing sure. conservative about any of them it's it's amazing to me to see people like that and I can't understand their motivation. I would love to talk to one of them one time. I would love to have them on this podcast to have that conversation. I think it would be interesting. Um, you know, the the January 6th thing, let's let's get to the election, November 3rd, 2020. What, what did you see? Because I think to get to January 6th, we have to talk about that election night, November 3rd, 2020. What did you see? Um, you know, I went to bed that night and saw Trump was ahead. And uh, just like everyone, and I fully expected to wake up the next morning and see that Joe Biden had won because there was no doubt that they were going to do. They'd already rigged the elections through the, um, you know, COVID restrictions, mitigation uh, <laughs> measures, as they called it. Um, and so already knew that all the mail-in absentee ballot, all the shenanigans and the swing states were going to happen and that Joe Biden ultimately would be elected. I mean, these were conversations I had with regular people, not regular people, I'm a regular person too, friends, you know, Republicans who were extremely fearful that Trump was going to lose, not because he deserved to lose or he actually was going to lose, but because the Democrats had rigged it in all of these states. And so, of course, that is exactly what happened. Um, so I think I felt like a lot of people did shocked, disgusted, angry, worried. Um, and, you know, as we found out more information after the election, what had happened in some of these states, that was only one facet of it, right? Now we know it was rigged on so many levels. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, that's how I felt. So my plan, though, Booker, after the election was, okay, I might pivot back to climate, see where the Democrats are going to go with climate change, 
follow the Republicans in the Senate because they're worthless, you know, just call them out for the. So we were all sort of figuring out what are we going to cover in the new administration? Well, haha. <laughs> then January <laughs> 6th happens. And you got your answer, didn't you? Um, let's sure let's did. go back to the time between November. Th- let's go back to the time between November 3rd and January 6th, because I think there were a lot of things happening in the Trump White House in December. What is your view of the things that were going on at that time? Um, chaos, chaos, disorganization, um, a lack of planning, a lack of manpower caught up with them. Um, you know, of course, there are things totally out of their control like these judges and courts who refuse to hear any of the legitimate um, disputes over the election. I think one of the best lawsuits filed was Ken Paxton's, the attorney general mm-hmm. of Texas, who yep. filed a very extensive detailed lawsuit that explained the, the uh, election illegalities really in four states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia. And the Supreme Court, four days later, absolutely out of hand, rejected it, would not hear the case. Um, They rejected every, uh, and these were lawsuits not even filed by Trump, filed by uh, Republicans in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. Um, And they just, there was no judicial relief. So there's only so much you could do about that. I think the team he put together was disorganized. They did not have a legitimate message to the public they should have focused on the laws that had been broken in places like pennsylvania and wisconsin where they were harvesting ballots where they were handling mail-in ballots and curing them before the legal deadline um and then places like michigan where of course you had the secretary of state who mailed out i believe 5.5 million absentee ballot applications of violating that state's election law um they focused on crazy stuff, right? Like, you know, release mm-hmm. the Kraken and the yes. servers are in Venezuela. Exactly. And that just gave, gave the, uh, you know, gave the ruling class, the media and the people in charge behind the scenes and the judges, quite frankly, the excuse to dismiss. And, Go ahead. And I was just going to say, and as we know, and we knew then, but now as we know, exactly how Twitter did it. They were suppressing all the information that we we knew and saw. And so for so many in the country, none of that existed. So now we, we carry along the path in December and we're getting to January 6th. And Donald Trump says, you know, maybe Mike Pence will have what it takes to not certify the electoral votes. And there were senators ready. I think Ted Cruz was one of them. And obviously several in the House of Representatives that were going to challenge it. And I think they had a plan there. Do you know what the plan was for that? I always heard two weeks to look at things. I don't know what they were going to look at, but what what do you what did you hear and what do you remember? So this is very important, Booker, because I think a lot of people are confused about this because, of course, it's been obscured. Um, what was happening on January 6th, what was happening during the breach is not the certification of the electoral college votes. It was a dispute. It was a debate of what Republicans had planned. Ted Cruz and 13 other Republican senators were working with um, House Republicans per the law to open up debate two hours each state. And they were calling for a 10-day federal audit commission to look into the election illegalities, irregularities in these states. When the breach happened, Ted Cruz and Paul Gosar from Arizona were going about to go through all of the election uh, fraud in Arizona. This debate booker was going to take about 12 hours. The American people who are paying attention were finally going to hear from the floor of Congress what had happened in these states and a vote or some attempt to get this 10-day election audit. Was it a Hail Mary? Yes. Is it something they should have done in November? Yes. But, you know, there they were trying at the last minute to get this commission. 
No one wanted this, right? The Biden regime didn't want it. Established Republicans did not want it. Mitch McConnell did not want it. He blasted Republicans for moving forward. He gave a speech that day that this was dangerous for the country, that Joe Biden was elected and we need to move on. And then lo and behold, the Capitol is breached. I'm using air quotes, breached. Yeah, yeah. And, and the timing was impeccable. It you know, sure right was. Right before the debate. Yeah. It sure Yes. So everyone who did not want this commission did not want, more importantly, the American people to hear this from the floor of Congress, got what they wanted. It was shut down. You had senators come back like Jim Lankford, like Kelly Loeffler, who, of course, found out that day that she had lost, who were supporting this commission, came back after the quote unquote insurrection and said, well, we can't do this now. You know, this is dangerous for the country, the democracy. We almost died blah, blah, blah. They've tried to overthrow the government. And so we're going to vote now to certify Joe Biden. So isn't that convenient how that all Yeah. Happened? And and then a year and a half later, we have the J6 committee made for television and with no Republicans represented on that committee. And we hear, hear a completely different story. And I want to move on to some of the facts of that day on January 6th, because I believe Again, there are two narratives, and there's got to be the truth. And let's take Officer Brian Sicknick. You know, I heard his family say that he died of natural causes two days after he died. It was published, and then it disappeared. And I never forgot that. But then he was bludgeoned with a fire extinguisher, and that that was part of the J6 committee's uh, testimony. And that did not happen. That's one example. And then then you have the FBI director, Christopher Wray, multiple times testifying under oath in congressional hearings, there were no guns. And it's, to me, it's just odd that you're gonna have an insurrection with the people that have the <laughs> most guns with no guns. You know, it, it's just illogical. And the, the, there are so many things that are factual, like. Ashley Babbitt. We know her name. We know she was killed. But no one knows Roseanne Boylan, do they? They don't. You know, Booker, I say over and over, if January 6th was so awful, it was comparable to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor and the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, which is the despicable comparisons that Joe Biden and Democrats in the media make. If it was so horrible, why do they have to keep lying about it? Why did they have to lie to this day? And Brian Sicknick's family, unfortunately, shamefully, uh, also lying to this day. You know, there was the um, uh, the uh, Congressional the Gold Medal of Honor, the ceremony this week, and the mother yeah. was there and refused to shake Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy's hand. Why? They were at the memorial service, a rare memorial service for Brian Sicknick in the Capitol Rotunda, usually reserved for presidents or Supreme Court justices who have passed away. They uh, accompanied a motorcade transporting Brian Sicknick's remains to Arlington National Cemetery. I mean, they have made this man into a, now by all accounts, a very nice young man tragically died at the age of 42. It sickens me. I hear from some of his friends. It sickens me how they're exploiting his death um, for political purposes. But why do they have to keep lying about it? Well, they're lying to cover up what happened to Ashley Babbitt, to Roseanne Boylan, to Kevin Greeson, and Benjamin Phillips, the four Trump supporters who died on January 6th, either partially or entirely due to police excessive slash lethal force that day, which is why Booker, they don't want to release the thousands of hours of surveillance video captured by security cameras at the Capitol inside and outside the building that day. Why yeah. can't we see that video? It, it, it just makes sense, right? Just show us everything. Let us decide. Why can't we decide um, what exactly happened on January 6th? I know you only have a few more minutes and I want to get to a couple of things. I want to I want people to understand that these January 6th defendants have been in prison in Washington, D.C. for two years, some of them. Do you know how many are there now? I know there's about a thousand arrested. And you told me three or four months ago that you thought that their magic number, what they were trying to get to, was a thousand. So I think they're right around there now. How many are still in prison waiting for their court date? 
Um, you know, it changes all the time because uh, a lot of these men have been held under pretrial detention, uh, which means that the judges have denied bail, have denied their release um, at the request of this DOJ, saying that they're a threat to their to society because they were involved in January 6th. Um, so I think probably at this point you've got I think there are a few dozen still in the D.C. Gulag. Some, and it, it changes because, for example, the Proud Boys trial starts in a few weeks. Those men who have been detained, I believe Joe Biggs has been in Florida. Ethan Ordine, I know, has been in Washington, the state of Washington, for uh, since April of 2021. They're now being transported to D.C. and Alexandria jail because they have to be present for their trial. So anyway, the... The D.C. Gulag itself, not everyone is being held there under pretrial detention. They're also being held in other prisons across the country. Um, but the Proud Boys is probably the most egregious. They face nonviolent charges. Joe Biggs, Ethan Ordean, who is on video walking through an open door with Capitol Police standing right there. To your point, they brought no weapons. Horrible militia groups, I have to say, the Proud yeah. Boys. Oh, keepers they brought no weapons to you know overthrow congress that day um, if i'm going to have an insurrection i'm not inviting any of these people yeah you cannot i mean you would have <laughs> to invite antifa or someone who's far more you know uh has, is armed at least and knows what they're doing not walk through so, an open door hey, julie is there is the do you know a website of where people can go to help the the, the defendants and their families financially do you, do you happen to know one off the top of your head i do the one that i and i uh, contributing a portion of my proceeds to my book to this group i worked very closely with them since the beginning of middle of 2021 there was no group to help there were no lawyers stepping up and that organization is patriot freedom project patriotfreedomproject.com you can adopt a one six family these kids are so desperate their lives are being destroyed. Um, and of course, the wives, the family, the entire family, you can donate. I think that there's a Christmas like gift drive going on right now. Um, and so you can donate not just to help with the lawyers, legal fees, but most importantly, help these families who are being uh, you know, utterly destroyed, ripped apart, bankrupted by this vengeful prosecution. And Julie, the last thing that I want to spend a minute on and I think it's important because of the tragedy that it is of January 6th is the suicides. Matthew Perna was a January 6th defendant and also the Capitol Hill policemen that have also taken their own lives. And I think we should always think of them and remember it. And it's just sad what these people have gone through as a result of that. Yes, this DOJ and the judges on the D.C. District Court um, are, are are torturing these people with the legal process. You know, it's the old uh, saying, the process is the punishment. Um, and what's even sadder, Booker, is not, it can't be sadder than people like Matthew Perna, who took his own life in February after learning that the DOJ was going to pursue four or five years in prison after he pleaded guilty to an obstruction charge, um, is hearing from people who have said, I've thought about this too. I understand why Matthew Perna killed himself. I want to take my own life, but I can't because I have to be, you know, I have two children because I don't want to leave my wife alone because I would never do that to my parents. They, it's not just the prosecution, it's the media treatment. It's being abandoned by their family members, by their communities, their neighbors. One man had his church kick him out of his church. I mean, What's happening to these people at every level is not, it has never been tolerated. It would never have been tolerated after 9-11 with Muslims in this country. We were told they're not responsible, right? This, these are the hijackers. These are the countries. The, imagine if things like, if banks were cutting off people just because maybe they cheered after 9-11 or they, I mean, we would never tolerate this with any other group of citizens for any reason, except we are because they are Trump supporters, because they are political dissidents of this Biden regime and the prosecutors and judges. And I'm telling Trump judges are as bad as the Democrat ones. They are gratified 
by inflicting pain on these people. It is sadistic, it's sick and twisted. I wish I had more time to cover what's happening in the courts versus- Maybe some other time. You know, maybe we can get into that. I do have one final question and it comes perfect time with what you just talked about. In January 4th, there is going to be a new Congress and the Republicans will have the House of Representatives. Are they going to be able to do anything to help this problem? Unfortunately, I don't think they can help this problem now. All they can do is expose what's happened to these people, what the FBI has done, what this DOJ has done, what these judges have done. They could certainly cut off funding. Look, there should not be a United States attorney for the District of Columbia appointed by whoever the president is in charge to do nothing but prosecute the opposition party, which is exactly what's happening. They should cut off every penny to the United States uh, attorney for the District of Columbia. Um, They should dramatically cut funding to other areas of DOJ and the FBI. Will they do that, Booker? I don't know. They have the power of the purse and they have the power of um, public, you know, exposure, investigations, hearings. So those two things need to happen simultaneously. Will they do it? We just have to keep putting the pressure on. That's what I tell people all the time. Just ring your congressman, congresswoman's phone off the hook and you say, this is dangerous, destructive, should not be happening. You need to do something about it. I agree 100% and I say the same thing. And Julie, thank you so much for giving us your time. I really do appreciate it. So great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, Booker, if I may. I'd like to say one thing, uh, Julie, uh, going back to when you were telling your life story and what you just kind of ended on, I'd like to say that Booker Nine, I, I think I can speak for Booker, we feel that you're one of the many examples or inspirations for men and women everywhere to get involved at the local level, to work their way up any way that they can, whether it's school boards, um, politicians, anything like that. Um, I just wanted to say that with all the great information that you gave us today, that's one thing that I can take from this. And I know we're pushing this. We want more people to get involved with voting and and everything. And I think you're going to be a great asset to that. And I really appreciate it. And I thank you very much. Lou, that's so kind. Thank you. I think that's a good note to end on. Go get involved. I thought that interview was very, very informational. We found out a lot about her life, which was very interesting to me because I knew nothing more um, about her than what I have seen on TV and and, and interviews. So that there right there to me was, that was just awesome. And then to get the inspiration and the example, the great example and inspiration that she would be for other people uh, to get involved locally into politics and to try to make change and to help out at the local level uh, all the way up to the top. So Those are things that uh, I got from that interview. I think she's awesome. I'm glad she joined us today. I'm glad this happened. Every decision they make can have an effect on our lives. You've been listening to Our Lives in Politics on the America Out Loud Network. 